podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. At an Australian Institute of Agriculture conference I attended recently, a leading economist in the UK, Dr Paul Fisher, said that if the entire world went vegan, we wouldn't actually have a food security issue. Now, he wasn't suggesting that this was going to happen or even that it was should happen, but it did highlight for us the fact that producing red meat is in food economy terms a very wasteful practice, both in terms of people fed per hectare or indeed people fed per megalitre of water when you compare it to grain cropping. And increasingly, we can see that Australians are beginning to turn their back on red meat and that in fact the burgeoning market is the middle class in Asia, which is now competing more and more for meat that has not been part of their diet in previous centuries. Indeed, the greatest growth in red meat demand for Australian producers is in fact in the developing world. And the developed world is seeing growth in veganism and all its variants. Now, in a previous episode of Agriminders, we talked about the supplying of live animals to those markets who can't handle or don't want to handle uh, frozen meat or chilled meat and how that has come under criticism for animal welfare issues. And in fact, those issues threaten to close down the live sheep export supply chain in Australia and therefore significantly affect sheep farmers in Western Australia in particular. So how's the Australian meat industry actually responded to these issues? That's the question that we want to answer in this episode. And to do that, we've gone to the peak body in Australia for red meat production, Meat and Livestock Australia, known as the MLA, and the chief executive of that organisation, Mr Richard Norton. Welcome to AgriMinders, Richard. Good morning. Thank you. Um, So, Richard, social credibility in food is something that I never even thought about when I was a youngster. Uh, and yet it is certainly alive and well today. And we see this strange phenomenon where uh, countries that we would have called the developing world are now buying what would be a food of the affluent, that is red meat, and demanding it and paying big dollars for it. And countries which were considered the developed world, in fact, um, seem to be going the other direction and not all becoming vegan, but certainly, you know, the eating of red meat has certainly not rising like it is in places like China. That almost seems like a contradiction. In the countries where red meat consumption is rising, principally through Asia and, and Southern Asia, uh, they already have a plant-based diet. And, and on a nutritional level, they're uh, being told to have more protein in their diets. So we're selling red meat into households that might only consume red meat once or twice every second week, but that's growing demand for our product. So within the red meat demand that's coming out of China and particularly out of Japan and Korea is this grain-fed red meat. Now, we talked in an earlier episode about the fact that to produce a kilo of beef takes the equivalent of 12 days' calories in grain for a human say, six or seven kilos of grain to produce a kilo of beef. And that seems to be quite wasteful, and yet that seems to be a trend over there. Now, it's a much bigger trend out of America, but we're competing with the Americans. So are we purely in there as a marketing niche, or, you know, why why is that insistence on them not eating our grass-fed meat? It's been the tradition in Japan, 
uh, grain-fed product gives a consistency in eating quality and a consistency of product. But in a free market, uh, the farmer in Australia grows the grain and he sells the grain. I don't know that most farmers that are selling the grain care who buys it, but uh, it's been purchased by Australian feedlots uh, and, and animal protein customers. And then they're obviously making money out of it, out of putting it into beef and selling it in Japan. And it's not until, I suppose, we go to uh, an economy or a a social structure that says, well, grain must go into these production systems and not into the beef system before that argument about uh, how much grain goes into beef is, is really quite relevant. Yeah, and, and we, we live with that all the time. I was talking to, uh, on our episode on cotton with uh, the chairman of Ozcot, and people criticise cotton for using water. But as he says, you know, we own the water. We have a right to use the water for what we will. But there is a tension between what the world perceives they need to feed the world and what people do with that food. And we've got a situation now where um, I think, you know, we're marketing grain and we've done it very well. I mean, the lot feed industry in Australia and the Australian Lot Feeders Association have done an amazing job in building that business from almost zero when I was at school to about a million head on feed, which is a massive growth and and it's quite profitable for them. But um, there is that tension there in what is right and what is good marketing. Yeah, the tension... It's understanding what's behind it. it it's the conversation around uh, laboratory-grown meat or, or synthetic meat or the conversation that you start with, that the world should go to a, a vegan uh, society of, of just plant-based food. And in a lot of ways, it's unrealistic. I mean, in, in Australia, 85% of our continent, I don't think, could grow a crop other than a shrub that uh, is feeding animals anyway. I think a lot of these assumptions are based off of other systems with very little understanding of Australia. Meat protein is a healthy part of the diet. The Australian Dietary Guidelines still have 400 grams of red meat in in a weekly diet. So I think it's understanding the intent of these conversations. Yeah, I think it's also maybe part of it is how urbanised we are in Australia. I think we're the second most urbanised country after Singapore and, and I just wonder how many people actually really think about you know how we how we're growing our meat, how we're producing it, and why we're doing it. You're exactly right. The the connection of metropolitan Australia to rural Australia is just broken down completely. Uh, where we had grandparents, cousins, aunties, and uncles that that you went home of at Christmas time to to work on the farm or understand farming, that that social structure has broken down, which has led to the fact that a lot of people just read social media or take those social media grabs. And, and it's very concerning to an organisation like MLA, mainly because it's our producers out there that hear all the negative about our industry, such as uh, the rise of the amount of people that just have vegetable-based diets, which actually, when you break it down globally, is not increasing, and animal welfare issues and environmental issues like the emissions from cattle and so forth. Our producers hear these stories and they think that the world's against them. When we break down the data and evidence, it's, it's actually not quite that complex. So a couple of weeks ago, I was um, attending a World Wildlife Foundation podcast seminar. They podcasted the proceedings where they had uh, the whole focus was on food and alternative proteins. And they had some millennials and Y-gens there really promoting this idea of cultured meat. Uh, and, you know, not only from fetal cells, but also from uh, from soybeans and so on. 
and, and they were quite vehement in their in their promotion of this to the detriment of red meat. And I put it to them, why are we doing this? We need all these sources if we're going to feed the world. Why are you so vehement? And they said, oh, well, because, you know, there's animal welfare issues, we'll solve that. We've got climate issues, we'll solve that. You know, all of these issues they were bringing up as surrounding the whole consumption of meat. Is this a real competitor for you, um, artificial meats, and how is the red meat industry going to respond to meet that? Well, the red meat industry looks at it as an opportunity. I mean, without criticising the Australian cropping industry, uh, it's a monoculture. Uh, so, you know, you walk to most uh, Queensland properties and you'd find uh, animal species and animal varieties that would be in the hundreds. You go to a wheat crop or any of Australia's major cropping systems like soy, and, and it's monoculture. And then there's the insecticides, herbicides, pesticides, synthetic fertilisers and so forth. It really does come back down to people understanding exactly what they're saying and researching what they're saying. I read a report the other day that said that uh, if the whole world moved to a vegan diet, emissions would drop by 2.6% globally. It doesn't make any, any sense, although it makes great sense in a social media grab or a headline. What we find with consumers is actually not who they trust for their information, but who they distrust the least. And I think that's the world we're now living in. I, I think you're, you're absolutely dead right. But there are some big, very switched on people putting a lot of money into this cultured meat, this Memphis meat they're talking about. Um, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, they're all pouring money into developing uh, these meats. So I'm not sure why that is, but is that something we need to counter or is it something we just watch? And I mean, I've yet to taste any cultured meat that has got the connective tissue, the fat and the enjoyment of eating proper meat. But And it's all been mincemeat that I've seen. I've never seen someone reproduce anything that looks remotely like a ribeye. You know, what's the counter to all that? You've hit the, the nail on the head. It's the texture and, 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 the, and the texture and the taste that will be the defining whether this synthetic meat or laboratory-grown meat will be accepted by consumers. But the red meat industry looks at it, you know, we have a product that is, cannot be any more natural. It's a product that, that is no preservatives, uh, there's no sodium in it. A lot of the plant-based proteins that are trying to replicate red meat are high in sodium for taste and, and, and acting as a preservative. So I do think that we as an industry have, have always got to strive to be better. We've reduced our emissions by 45% over the last 15 years. We've reduced our water usage rate by 65%. We're not shirking away from the challenges that are presenting ourselves by consumers. We're listening to consumers. And I think uh, when you listen to consumers, it creates the opportunity. And the opportunity for the Australian red meat industry is all natural. It's an all natural product. It's a grass, grass and grain fed product that is that can be not be any more natural than what it is. And then the health benefits that come with it. Uh, so we are looking at um, countering those marketing opportunities around red meat as, as a natural product against a laboratory-grown product. So when we've been talking about all of these products uh, in this series, we've been talking about the three Ps of productivity, principles and provenance as being critical in this current day and age. 
So when it comes to provenance, you're right. People definitely want to, you, you've marketers being, I think Australia and New Zealand have done a better job than any other country in marketing the idea of natural meat. I think that's right. But how is it actually portrayed in a transparent way, other than it comes from Australia and New Zealand? How are you? How have you been successful in actually allowing people to be able to trace that their meat is actually being raised in a natural way and in a way that uh, if there was, for example, an outbreak of something in Australia, had avoided that for that particular piece of meat? So for 20-odd years, this industry has invested in traceability systems. We probably have the uh, highest food standards in our processing sector of anyone in the world, uh, which, which enables us to have... Um, very good market access. We market to over 100 different countries. Uh, the Australian red meat industry is a very professional industry. It's been in China for 20 plus years, having represented our product up there, the same in Japan, the same in South Korea. So having those high standards of giving traceability right back to farm gate has helped us retain market access when the US has lost it over over mad cow disease, South America's lost it over foot and mouth disease. Yes, Australia has a natural island advantage, but we also still probably have the best traceability systems of our product than any of our competitors in the world. So I do see red meat, lamb and beef and, and goat in the future being marketed like boutique beers, like red wine and white wine with that marketing story. And then it's the laws that we currently have around truth in labelling. And the industry, as a sophisticated industry, has very set guidelines that are entrenched in law around the claims around raising of the animals that you're allowed to put on your product as well. I think I saw on your website the other day this new labelling system where you can hold your phone on a, on a label of a bottle of wine and, and it will actually have the winemaker leap out of the label and actually tell you how he's raised his particular bottle of wine. Is that something that we could also use for the red meat industry? Is that why you had it on there? We had it there for, for that reason. And also we showed a, a supermarket of the future where you can scan the meat as you take it out of the, the, the refrigerator and, and it'll tell you the, the amount of calories, the amount of protein uh, in the meat, where it came from, right down to, to the producer and region. All these marketing initiatives, I think... Um, will be one of the ways that uh, as competitive proteins and competitors like laboratory grown meat and vegetable protein come along, that we'll retain our position in the marketplace. I mean, beef is still the, still holds 36% market share of fresh meat sold in this country. It is still by sales value. It is still the number one seller in this country. So we, we see consumption per capita declining, but that means that unfortunately meat has lifted in price because price is the main reason people don't buy meat in in uh, Australia but globally the demand for Australian red meat is is increasing when i was a schoolboy my mum very very rarely bought beef because it was always expensive even then it would be a real treat for us we bought a lot of lamb because that was cheap uh, but that was even before the days of any fast food in the ways of chicken so you know it was a different world but nonetheless if you did buy a piece of beef it was very much um, a 50-50 chance whether you're going to have a good eating experience 
or a crook one. And yet as far back as that, US had this US choice grading, which gave you a really good chance. I think their figure was 86% chance of a good eating experience. So we've come up now with Meat Standards Australia, which is known as MSA grading. And that gives you, I think the figure is 92% chance. I don't know how these figures come about, probably statistics. But how successful has that been as bringing certainty of consistency into an eating experience for people eating beef? Meat Standards Australia is is now in its 20th year and I think you've – I'll start with saying that uh, the red meat industry has had wonderful foresight to 20 years ago try to understand how you can have an Australian system, which is a grass-fed system, with the feedlotting system of around a million cattle, understanding there's 26 million, 27 million cattle out there. A lot of our systems are based on grass. So how do we increase eating quality by using science across – the two fundamental raising systems in Australia. And Meat Standards Australia did that by testing consumers, doing meat sampling, uh, and it's nearly up to a million consumers now globally. So it's, it's a long-running program. So it, it is exactly, as you've said, around ensuring the consistency of the product to the consumer. So putting the consumer as number one in the value chain, saying the consumer is the king, we must deliver that consistency in the eating quality. And science from how we raise the animals, animal husbandry, the social structure of animals, right through to the, the processing facility have helped deliver that. And that enables you to then market the product as a brand. You might not use the MSA grading system on label. You use it back at the processing plant. But it enables you to know that I'm going to charge a lot of money for this product but I know it's going to have an eating quality experience that a consumer expects when they pay that amount of money. So it's been a wonderful success for industry. So with all these fantastic things that have happened just in my lifetime in terms of improving beef's um, marketability, you've, you've looked at the provenance, you've got that well served. We haven't even talked about, you know, livestock identification systems, which you've got. You've got the grading systems. Um, you've done so many things to make sure that we overcome the objections why is there still so much negativity about red meat around the place? Where do these arguments come from? It, it has, um, in my time at four and a half years at MLA, in, in the last two years, it, it's really been the number one issue. And, and obviously the live export industry and, and the flaws in, in that industry haven't helped, but it is just the power of the media. It's the power of social media. It's, it's to me, I use the example when standing in front of producers that, that people have broken trust with, with, you know, banks, social media like Facebook and so forth. So you've got to go beyond the consumer expectation. You can't just rely on regulation uh, within your industry to say, well, you know, the consumer should be happy because the regulation says that this is all right. You've got to go beyond the consumer uh, expectation and deliver. And now when that's not delivered, it obviously uh, is a headline. And, and that's, I think, um, where some of this negativity has come from. But we, again, too, struggle with how we get that science message out to consumer land versus the social media grab uh, around all the good things as an industry we have done. But again, I, I come back to uh, the we monitor is, is the vegan diet increasing in Australia. Uh, and, and then we have this confusion between people that are vegan Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes vegetarian, but not all the time. At various stages of their life, they're vegetarian, but then they move out of that as, as they go into families and so forth. So 
I just think it's more awareness of, of our industry, more awareness of social structures and more awareness of people's diets that uh, a connected world delivers back to you. Yeah, I think you raise a good point, though, because unfortunately scientists, and I'm one myself, you know, scientists can often be great at education. They have all the knowledge in the world. They can even be inspirational because of what they've done, but their ability to engage in a communication way is in some cases almost zero. And for science to engage with the people in the way that social media does with, you know, those well-known reputed women's magazines, you know, peer-reviewed stuff in journals doesn't carry the weight of an article in some of those magazines. It's just ridiculous. And one of the issues, of course, that always appears in those is animal welfare. Now, you've on a couple of occasions publicly stated that you're concerned about the links people make between unrelated animal welfare issues like mulesing in wool sheep with you know, with the beef industry. But you've also got a situation where of the three main businesses you've got, which is live animal, um, feedlots and grass-fed, live animal and feedlots are by far the smallest bits of those and yet they cop all the flack about welfare and can do damage to the overall industry. Well, how have you performed, on? do you think, on, on solving these welfare issues? Well, animal welfare, when we do consumer testing, is, is a major uh, risk to our industry and perception of, of our industry. So so we turn that around and go, well, we have an enormous opportunity here to get it right. You know, the live export industry, I think uh, per 100,000 population in Australia, 4.8 people um, die from, from road deaths in Australia. If you turn that around and, and did the same for the live export industry for sheep, uh, per 100,000 sheep export at the mortality rate is 0.7. So you've got a bigger chance of dying on an Australian road uh, than you have in in um, live exporting well, sheep. Well, sheep's got a bigger chance of dying in a drought than on a live, you know, and yet we never hear any flack about <clears> that. So, again, but those numbers don't resonate with consumers. What resonates with consumers is that we trust you to do the right thing and we just don't want this negativity that drives us away from your product. And, and I think this is paramount whether you're selling red meat or, or any product or service in today's society. So we are starting to put in standards that, that have KPIs around animal welfare standards right across our production system. Anyone that understands selling red meat are going to, you know, the future labels will have sustainability credentials around it, zero emissions from, from the production of this red meat. We've uh, captured carbon right through our production model. We abide by the highest global standards of animal welfare. If we're going to survive in this industry, they're the type of um, things that we'll put upon ourselves before it's regulated to our industry to do so. And our industry has been quite proactive in doing that now, particularly around animal welfare standards and reporting back in a public and transparent manner how we're going against those standards. How about hormone implants? I mean, that to me is also a much fraught, misunderstood business. There's more hormone in in heifer meat than there is an implanted steer meat. And yet, you know, people go through these marketing campaigns in big supermarkets saying we're proudly hormone-free, even the whole of Europe says that. Um, And yet the production loss by not being able to use these is significant and we throw them out without any science behind that at all. What's what's happening with the hormone story? So I think uh, 
if you go back decades ago, there, there was obviously controversy probably around hormones, not so much in the red meat sector, but probably in the chicken sector. Yeah. And and they were banned in the chicken sector and, and it transferred over to the red meat industry. What you've said is exactly right. I don't know how many tonnes of red meat you'd have to eat uh, of, of hormone implanted beef before it would have a negative impact on your health. But we've lost that that ability to use a product that helped increase uh, productivity. Even a natural occurring hormone uh, back into cattle has now been banned by many of our end customers uh, as a technical trade barrier. And again, it is. It's science has lost. Science and logic lost that argument because it was based on, on hormones from another production system in another animal. Uh, it is disappointing. Uh, but this this is the lesson of, of, of the future and, and we as an industry must take heed of the power of the consumer and the consumer is king. And unless we are a consumer-focused industry, these are the type of things that will impact us and our production systems in the future. That brings me on to climate change. Now, this has been obviously a global issue and a fraud issue. One of the things that's frustrated me as a scientist has been how vehemence has overwhelmed scientific debate here. Um, and anyone who's even questioned um, scientists, you know, can be criticised for even questioning them, whereas that would normally be part of the process. And I'm not suggesting whether whether we're going to actually successfully reverse Anthropocene change or whether we're not. I don't know. But I would say any scientist would say there is a risk that we will not be able to reverse the amount of carbon that is going to build up in the atmosphere and therefore uh, any change in the temperature that might occur from that. It's certainly not a dead certainty. And yet we, do, we seem to be putting all our eggs in that basket and maybe not enough of our eggs in the adaptation basket. But I think in the case of the red meat industry, you've, you last year made the claim that we were going to be carbon neutral in the red industry. Um, but that, of course, doesn't just mean getting rid of all the carbon emissions. It also talks about sequestering carbon. How are we going in that program? How are we actually going to be able to do that? So the industry has reduced its carbon footprint by, by 45% in the last uh, last decade. The opportunities around using science and innovation, I think, uh, will get us to a position of being carbon neutral. We can reduce the emissions from, from sheep and cattle through supplementary feeding of, of additives that are on the market now. So this is the the burping cow where they produce methane in their first stomach and then they they burp it burp it out the other end. It's not people talk about the other end, but it's actually the burping is more the issue. But we can actually stop that now or just reduce it. We just at this point in time just reduce it. But we're working with uh, researchers around the uh, probiotic for cattle and sheep that uh, would reduce that methane perhaps by 70 or 80%. So a probiotic will actually change the bacterial population so they don't, they're not the bugs that produce the methane. Is that, that right? That's exactly yeah. right. And, and then look at the bacterial population within the ruminant of, of cattle and understand which ones do produce the methane. But you're talking here about uh, trying to identify the, the animal because through our research so far, we know some animals have high growth rates and produce very little methane. And then there's other animals that are complete the opposite. So I'm a strong believer that as an industry, when you have a focus and have a target and you focus your resources, energy and money on a particular target, like understanding how we as an industry 
can become carbon neutral that will deliver this by 2030, if not sooner. And then you go down to the production systems and the production systems of, of what we do in Australia as a as sort of a natural grazing system. Are we sequentiating carbon here? And if we're doing that in our soils and then we're looking at the animals producing uh, less methane, I think you know, human ingenuity will deliver. One of the key aspects of the CSIRO's recommendations for um, reducing emissions has been to do with stopping or um, limiting the clearing both of land that's been cleared before and of new forest. Now, within the industry of red meat production, that's controversial because that beautiful Brigalow and Brigalow Balar country up in Queensland, that depends on being all that Brigalow, which is really a type of wattle tree, being cleared to allow the, the grasses to regrow and to increase the stocking rates. If they're going to be forced to let all that just return back to Brigalow and, and to, uh, to trees and forest, the production cost of that will be unacceptable to most of those producers. Yeah, and the CSIRO report said the quickest way to get to um, carbon neutrality was to have less animals. I mean, that that's uh, quite an obvious outcome. But we've also got studies that have been delivered by state governments that grasslands deliver a carbon sequentiation, hold the soil structure together so they prevent erosion, and the brigalow and the regrowth of, of young trees is capturing carbon, uh, obviously, as they grow again. So uh, as a red meat industry we were given about 30-odd recommendations around how we could reduce it, but we're taking the focus on five going forward around some of the things I've spoken about, but also the fact that uh, we want to prove some of the science, have it peer-reviewed uh, globally so that we can stop this toing and froing debates around who said what, what's, what science was counteracting the other science that was delivered uh, and, and get a position for industry to move forward so that uh, governments understand the science and, and don't over-regulate our industry. Uh, and, and that's the concern of our industry, that some of the science delivered already will tell you that grasslands, cleared grasslands with regrowth will capture more carbon than the long-established forest systems. Coming to the other side of the equation then, we've talked in the previous episodes about the Plan B you know, if we're not successful globally um, in stopping temperature rises over two or three degrees, or if they occur for any other reason, um, at the end of the day, we're going to need to adapt to those. And that's going to mean some massive changes in Australia. Areas that are currently farmed will no longer get any rain to farm. The water's in the wrong place. There's so many issues that we, and yet we don't seem to be putting as much resource into that as we are into um, reducing emissions. What, what about the red meat industry? What, where are we going with helping our farmers adapt to what may be something that we can't avoid? Uh, from a farming point of view, one of the first things we're, we're doing and investing is, is getting more accurate weather forecasting so that uh, we can understand perhaps if, if there's going to be long-term droughts, what we in a production system need to do to prepare for that. In terms of um, what we would look like if there is temperature rising, then, then obviously more of Australia will be an animal-based farming system than perhaps it will be a cropping system. So we have animals running in very arid systems at the moment and surviving quite well that go into calf every year and produce, produce milk and, and are highly fertile. Uh, so one of the things we're doing is trying to DNA, find the DNA of those animals just in time, say, at the site of a cattle crush. So we might identify the DNA sequence for highly fertile animals in arid systems. And we don't have that technology at the moment. 
we, we, we put out females and hope they get in calf, then bring them back in and, and, and take the calves off to, to the market when ready. Uh, and we sort of accept anywhere from, you know, 30, 40 to 60% weaning rates. Uh, as science evolves and DNA testing becomes a lot cheaper for, for our industry, I think the productivity gains are, will be there and adaption will be through some of the science that will be executed in an economical way on farm. What about water, Richard? I mean, if you look at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, we we did an episode and interviewed the chair of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, and he was saying that the biggest user of irrigation water is, in fact, the animal industry, not cotton. As cotton is about 26%, the animal industry is about 30%. So if that reduces, or is that is that uh, toughened in any way? I mean, is that going to change the – I guess it'll change maybe the type of animal we raise and therefore we have to get used to eating different type of beef. Will it change from whether it's lamb or beef? I mean, what changes are we going to see with water not being available? Well, it's a theoretical world that, that, that you're describing and and it's around um, there being limited water that you're describing. I think uh, a lot of the challenges will be around how we capture that water in the future from areas of Australia that receive massive amounts of water compared to to the arid in, inland parts of the water. I'm from uh, the Snowy Mountains and and you look at the systems up there of, of Jindabyne and Lake Eukenbeam and so forth and how that's an area that, that quite often gets a lot of snow, a lot of rain, and it's now feeding water in inland Australia and, and created enormous food productivity uh, uplifts right through to Griffith and so forth. Those type of systems are the type of systems that – that I think this country needs to think about those big, bold statements of of we're going to ensure that we have food security in the future and and these are the type of programs that we need to do, particularly in far north Queensland, um, in areas like that. There's nothing wrong with Australian soils. We we have a vast variety of climate already in Australia that I've just described, from tropical far north Queensland to arid inland Australia, but we see so much water run out to, to the ocean in, in times when, when there's huge rainfall in some of these areas. So given that, you know, there's a lot of thought out there and, and um, we're very much dependent on using a lot of that water, is there anything that the red meat industry is doing to reduce our water usage to make us more suited to a drier climate? So we've reduced our water usage by 65% over a long period of time, since 1980. How have so, we done that? So we've, we've uh, tapped artesian bores so that... Um, they're not continuously flowing. They're, they're, they're now in controlled systems. Obviously, um, put a lot more pipelines in to get uh, water to animals. So I think some of the development through Central Australia has been that, that animals can only walk two to three kilometres to water points, but that means there was major investment in infrastructure around water so that um, animals were not having to walk huge distances to, to get water, but that's been obviously through uh, the technology of, of transferring water to, to where it's needed by the animals. The issue of, of as you've said, only 5% of the water is captured on farm in Australia uh, means that uh, there's, there's still enormous opportunity for infrastructure around how we can use water more efficiently on farms because at the moment a lot of it is, is water that's just captured in open dam systems. 
So, Richard, in terms of the economy of Australia, you know, we have about $60 billion worth of, of business in agriculture. How important is the beef industry to that? And what are the opportunities we've got in the future? I see we're going to be sponsors of the Olympic Games in, in Tokyo in 2020. That's a fantastic and very clever initiative, given that they're such a big market for our grain-fed meat anyway. Um, what are the other opportunities that we have and what will be the effect on the economy of, of uh, beef in the future? Well, uh, processing of red meat is now the biggest manufacturing sector in Australia. It's a vital part of our economy. Uh, I, I saw a report the other day that even the live export industry employs close to 10,000 people in Australia and delivers $620 million back to farm gate. All these things uh, mean that, that our livestock industry in Australia is such a, a vital part of our economy. And I think we as an industry need to tell metropolitan Australia that it is. The prosperity of Australia is very much around our red meat industry. But having said that, um, as you pointed out, I think the moving average price for beef at retail level in Australia at the moment is $28 a kilo. I have said it for some time that uh, there could be outrage in Australia that our red meat, particularly beef, is becoming too expensive for our domestic consumers. I don't know whether we will get to that point because uh, high prices drive increases in productivity and they drive more, more production. But there is huge global demand out there for our product and, and that's what's driving just the sheer number of tonnage going offshore of Australian beef. You know, it's 70, up to 65 to 70% of it now all ends up in a global market. The Australian domestic market is still our biggest market but I think it's going to change the way Australia's relationship with will be with beef in the future. I, my favourite meat is sort of a big Scotch fillet off a 600-kilo Jap ox. I'm flat out finding that in Sydney. Nor, nearly all our meat we have is this small animal um, and non-grain-fed. Do you see the grain-fed business changing in the future and our consumption pattern changing, grass-fed becoming more popular, or where do you see that mix occurring? Well, you, you're right. Grass-fed into the USA has gone from virtually nothing now to near, annually about 60,000, 70,000 tonnes. It's been quite incredible how the grass-fed systems and accreditation of the grass-fed systems has evolved over the last three to four years. But I think at the end of the day, it'll be like the marketing of a product. It'll be, again, the, the same as red wine versus white wine, grass-fed versus grain-fed, taste, consistency, texture, and then people will make their own minds up as to what they want. But one thing will be certain is that consumers who are paying this money for our red meat in the future will want that information. They will, for the first time, now are demanding to understand how that animal was raised, where it was raised, was it uh, raised in a sustainable model? What are the animal welfare credentials? What's the breed? And what's the philosophy of the person that actually grew that product? So, Richard, in terms of red meat, and I'm including lamb and beef, uh, not so much goat meat. I know you look after that as well, but a lot of that's exported. But in terms of lamb and, and beef, where do you see that going? Are you optimistic about our future over the next 30 years for the red meat industry as we see it today? The red meat industry's got its challenges. Understandably, that uh, like any any food production industry, it must meet those challenges to retain the trust of consumers. But I'm highly optimistic. When I travel the world, it's the biggest question asked to me is: Are we going to still have a lot of cattle in Australia to supply our consumers across the world? And I come back to Australia and say, well, the social media tells you this about our industry. It tells you that this trend is evolving. I think the biggest thing that Australian 
producers need to concentrate on is is getting more calves on the ground and more lambs on the ground to meet this boom in protein that is coming. And understand that beef consumption is predicted to rise from 24 to 2.7% over the next five years. And for Australia to take advantage of that, it may be at the expense of our domestic consumers. And you think that you'll be successful in staving off the competition from the artificial meats? Uh, competition is competition. I think we just need to tell our story and, and we need to be transparent as an industry in, in telling that story and not break consumer expectations and trust. Well, Richard, thank you very much for being part of our AgriMinders today. You're the true AgriMinder in, in red meat industry in Australia and we've heard it from the horse's mouth. Um, I think we look with great optimism on where that will go from a marketing point of view. Red meat, I think, will always be part of our diet and it's been great to be able to talk to you about it. My so thank you for joining us. So I'm not sure what the red meat industry is going to look like in 20 or 30 years' time. It's almost certainly going to be a industry based around the extremely affluent. But the paradox for that is that it could be in countries we don't associate with affluence. Nonetheless, it will be an important part of our food production as we move forward to the future. If you'd like to take a deeper look into these issues of animal welfare in particular, please go back and listen to our previous episodes where we explored this in depth. Join me again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.